Unsexy Business with Jamie Waller. Hi, this is Jamie Waller and welcome to my new series of podcasts called Unsexy Business. The podcast ties in with the release of my new book of the same name, details on that later. In this series, I'll be talking to a range of business owners and entrepreneurs. This isn't about Silicon Valley style corporations or the latest tech initiative. This is about traditional business models, thoughts and plans that could easily have begun in a pub or your own garden shed. Simple ideas that have become multi-million pound companies. It's these stories that interest me. From plumbers to parking, penny suites to second-hand cars, I'll be meeting the people behind some of Britain's most successful businesses. Welcome to Unsexy Business. My guest this week is Lara Morgan, the entrepreneur and former CEO of Pacific Direct, the now global cosmetics giant who specialises in selling luxury products into the hotel industry. I began by asking Lara how she got started and what was expected of her. What do you want me to do? And they said, well, you know, we want you to go to hotels and tell them that you represent a factory in, in China. And genuinely, I got my name card with the title factory representative. And I thought just to underline it, China, common factory. You know, and I, I'd turn up this ridiculous child in her borrowed clothes. And my grandmother, who was my strategic advisor living in Bedford, which was the free accommodation at the time, said, darling, you're going to starve. Um, so at least go to the Dorchester and the Savoy because at least you'll get fresh orange juice and a decent coffee. And that was Granny's strategic plan for keeping her child alive. And actually, it was brilliant because I, by total luck, ended up on Park Lane. I remember genuinely walking up the steps of, of Park Lane a bit lost because I don't know London very well, thinking, shit, I'm on the Monopoly board. And shit, it's blue. And that's really expensive because I didn't know who the Dorchester were. You know, and I potted off... Um, up Park Lane to the Dorchester. I was shaking by the time I got to the building, the Dorchester, which was fortunately for me closed. And I went to the procurement office around the corner to a guy called Ken Roberts. And I, you know, sat with him and I said, you know, I represent a factory in China. And he said, how can that be? He said, my sewing kits are made in Kent. And I said, are you bad? I said, do you really think your sewing kits are made in Kent? And I just didn't know any other way other than to have a conversation and say it how it is. And I said, look, you know, I grew up in Asia and these sewing kits don't get this way <clears throat> because little people in Kent are doing it. They're important. And I said, you know, I think I can do better for you. And, and by the way, I've got this amazing product, which is a pre-threaded sewing kit. I mean, that is innovation. You know, and, and at the time, because I was 23 and had perfect sight anyway, I could understand the value of it. He thought it was brilliant because all the bloody 45-year-olds that can afford the Dorchester can't bloody see their needles to thread them. <laughs> I now value that sewing kit. And he said, well, can you quote me those? And I, I danced back down Park Lane thinking, 10,000 sewing kits, my future's made. And ended up quoting him 19.7p, which was only 19,070 quid's worth of business. And it was laughable, but genuinely that's Pacific Direct start. And Pacific Direct wasn't called Pacific Direct then, it was called Pacific Manufacturing because I invented the name with no marketing knowledge. I just thought, well, we shit goods come across I got the ocean right which was good because my geography was shit they wouldn't back me so the deal was and this was a huge lucky strike they'd help me with very favorable credit terms but I had to register the company I had to get my VAT number I had to import the goods I had to do the business I had to make the sales because they had other customers in UK that they didn't want to piss off because in effect they were trying to go direct to end user so I, by pure luck, I, I registered a company with my mother as the other shareholder because you had to have two shareholders in those in 1991. I had 99%. Mummy had a share. She got a share because she lent me the money to buy my first car here. Seemed like a 
I mean, I paid her back, but the first share was quite a good deal in the end. And um, I then literally got an old Rolodex with cards in it. And every Sunday I would go to li the library at Bedford and I would handwrite at the top of each card the hotel, the phone number, the fax number, if it was in the advert, but most weren't, it was just the phone number of the hotel. So I still know that the Dorchester's number, even though it has changed to O. Oh, 207 these days it's 6298888 like the Hyatt Jamira is 6281234 and if you ask me hotel phone numbers I can still tell you them <laughs> because that's really sad I wouldn't even get a drink in the morning until I'd made 100 or 200 calls because that's how I set myself this objective of actually I just have to speak to people leave messages you know and pray that somebody's and I literally would almost dance around the room if somebody rang me back it took me, by the way, nine months to get my first order. The Dorchester never raised a purchase order for nine months for my sewing kits because they didn't need them. They had stock and, no. and the persistence there. So I starved between April and whenever the nine-month period was. But in the meantime, Richard came back and we set up... You know, I had a one-bedroom flat at Wally End Cottage in Cranfield and I'd, I'd go and see Granny and play hockey in Bedford and... So I went to three or four accountants in Bedford and I just said, look, I'm 23, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need someone to teach me how to, how to understand my financial accounting. There were no software packages. You know, we, I was literally doing pencil book entry into the Borton sales ledger side and adding up my VAT return and filling in my own VAT return, which made me shake the first time I filled it in. It was terrifying. I mean, genuinely, I can still remember that day. I still even know the number. I remember writing in a £1,327 check and shaking as I wrote it because it was a lot of money, but that was my VAT bill for that quarter or whatever it was. And, but the power of that lesson uh, and me saying to my accountant, please can you give me a couple of hours a month so that I can bring in my red ledger and you can sense check that I'm doing this right. As a foundation for business, I don't think there's any better foundation than a child or any child at school, and you know, I would love to advocate that, but that we do our own accounts, we do our own expenses, we understand you know, profit and loss and bought and sold and the gap between, and, and that priceless but mundane, dull, miserable, box-filling shit that I'm rubbish at allowed me to understand how my business operated. I'm, I've still got that red book. That is one of the historical pieces of making 20 million quid that I have kept. In fact, it's one of the very, very few things. I see so many people misunderstanding the importance of actually, it's not all about you, it's not all about your product, it's about what is the customer's objective and are you providing a fair price and a fair solution and a genuine solution because then you'll sell something and then you'll sell it again and then you'll sell it again and again and again. So by listening to the customer and going, Honestly, I don't know anything about soap, but how about... I mean, in the end, I even had the ridiculous... You know, I think when you're naive at that stage, you don't know what's possible and what's not possible. So I managed to convince the Housekeepers Association, and I knew I was chancing my arm. I think we were probably... We. I think we were three people. We must have been three years in, and I must have had some growing level of awareness. But I remember joining the Housekeepers Association, being terrified by these granddams of the of the housekeeping world who were actually incredibly lovely people who worked their backsides off making beds and who the hotel industry never really respected in the early days as much as they have appreciated the value of that now I think and not even good now but better than it was 
I convinced them to all get on a coach at, ironically, the Churchill Hotel in those days and take a bus to Buckingham to see where we made our soap. Because what I had done is heard that they also would like to know about how their product was made and nobody had offered an excursion. I mean, and, you know, this is me taking housekeepers. By the way, I had no strategy then, so I didn't even know what strategy meant. Um, Taking product you know, an understanding product and them going, well, we're really interested and sticking them on a bus. I I gave them a baked potato out of a baked potato van at Buckingham Soaps because it's all I could afford. But they thought it was so obviously clear that I had tried really hard to do something original and different. I knew I'd charged my arm because I knew it wasn't an hour out out of London in a bus. I knew they'd be late by 40 (laughs) minutes. I knew I'd have to run them around the factory. I knew I was pushing boundaries. I knew that some of them would be angry that they were going to have a late night. But I knew that if I could give them a really interesting tour, that actually I'd get away with a baked potato. Because actually most people are pretty down to earth. And actually, I'm a great believer that most of us are, are pretty human and, and I'm not any different from anyone else and I never have been and I hope I never will be because actually I quite like baked potatoes. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of too much fuss and I think, you know, I think also that, that the genuine... Being the genuinely idiotic article that I definitely rode the wave on, and I used to use this sentence when I needed to learn about anything, you know, treat me like an idiot, I'm really keen to learn. I understand you're the expert. Oh, my God, does somebody then just, you know, give you every answer? Don't get me wrong, I don't ever take one person's feedback. I will. I have a three-quote system in my head which says I want to speak to three experts, and then I work out, actually... A, are they really the experts? Who's got the best idea and can I beat any of them? And then I come up with my own, how's, what's my best solution going forward? You're listening to Unsexy Business and my guest this week is Lara Morgan, the former founder and CEO of Pacific Direct. I knew so little. I was very open to any level of expertise and um, intelligence and advancement and ideas. And you know, the, I did read a lot of business books, but I really, I was talking to Intercon Hotels today about, you know, the value of having a culture of continual improvement because I always knew I was the idiot in the room. The value of having someone who genuinely, genuinely knew how lacking in skill sets I was, i.e. I had to learn about freight, I had to learn about accounting. I was still flicking, flying by the seat of my pants with my ridiculous marketing ideas which were limited and mostly rubbish, I think. But, you know, cheap, because I was a cheap date. I did everything on the cheap. You know, if I could get it, if I could do it, you know, what an idiot. Um, which didn't always pay off, but we, we got away with murder, and we did a lot of cool stuff, which was ridiculously cheeky. Um, but well, there wasn't much friction, because Margaret was a brilliant town planner. Carol did the bookkeeping meticulously. And I think that the lesson in all of that is recruit the people that you trust implicitly, and then bloody trust them. You know, what is the point of employing a, having a dog and barking for it is a brilliant saying that most leaders can't seem to get to grips with. But I was really good at not, not trying to do the job of something. I knew what I liked doing. I liked selling. I was never a particularly, you know, superly devoted academic. I picked the books with lots of diagrams and big chapter gaps and pictures and fun stuff. But actually, if that gets you through it, yes, every now and again, I have managed to you know, read myself through some hardcore, proper grown-up, very dull, but quite useful educational stuff. I mean, 
you know, and the other thing is, is that I then started to get more educated. But one of the things I did, which I don't think enough startup business people do, is they don't look at what's happening in the local press, in the business-to-business news, and go to every free breakfast bacon butty learning session on whatever the bloody topic is just to give themselves a bit of a more knowledge on whatever is coming at them next because those things that are being talked about were things that I was going to encounter you know and invariably the lawyers want to talk about recruitment and the you know and and the accountants want to get other boring people into the room about stuff that I knew nothing about but invariably you would always take away stuff that was useful and actually I think those my my mother's voice ringing in my ear don't write in books don't fold over pages and don't is just bloody rubbish you know I was young to be doing what I was doing and so I would then prepare you know I would do my homework I would and that wasn't like you could bloody do it on the internet it would mean I turned up early and I talked to the staff at the hotel and I tried to get a room viewing if I was doing my homework and seeing I needed to know what the room was like and what the style was like and that just seemed like you know good homework and I started then realizing how few people worked quite as hard at caring for my customers desire to improve their own business so again you know is it lucky that I had old-fashioned parenting and putting my feet into the shoes of others to try and position the knowledge that was genuinely going to help them and add value that came from childhood learning you know and if at first you don't succeed try try again and if you look after the pennies the pounds look after themselves and you know all of those things I think created a very sturdy family culture in the business where everybody cared and I you know and and yeah I didn't stand behind a desk because a I've got ants my pants and b it's boring and See, I think there's a lot to be said for demonstrating and having shadows, which is cheap learning. I mean, the idiots that run businesses and and don't subject themselves to the pressure of having a new member of their team seeing how it's done, they are missing a trick. And I remember having to, inverted commas, sharpen my own axe when I had a young person shadowing me because I had to be at the top of my game because I wanted them to be the best that they could be, which meant... I was on show. So, and I always thought I was failing. I mean, you know, I think some of us are driven by this paranoia, which was, you know, my dad had gone bankrupt and I, I, you know, I was now running a proper business. And I mean, you know, you then start getting recognised. And actually, all I recognise is the responsibility of more bloody mortgages to pay and more risk because I was employing more people and had more responsibility. And that was a genuine concern that every first of the month I needed to know I had the income to pay people's salaries. That mattered beyond everything. There were very bad days when, you know, I I let a gentleman go who was 63. He's an absolute legend, hotel person, hotel salesperson. And when he joined me, I just bloody jumped for joy because he brought maturity and credibility to this poxy Lara Morgan shambles. He believed in my company and it made... You know, I was very proud to get a gentleman of his um, expertise and, and, and reputation in Pacific because it, it was a big tick and I had to let him go. And he turned to me and he was, you know, unbelievably generous Yorkshireman who said, you've done the right thing. I mean, I was, in, I was finished at that point. In fact, I think that's probably the first time I've been able to recount that story. 
without being tearful, but equally my PA Mandy, who is a friend today, at the time stormed out of the room when I let her go because she was one point short of the score that we like put a line under to let people go, which was you needed to be all you know you need to be agile across a lot of the tasks because we're going to have to change the whole structure of the business. And actually, her skill set wasn't ambidextrous enough for want of a better description. And actually, also, I suspect she suffered from the fact that I might have been immature enough to to cull her because it was easier to cull her and show the rest of my general management team that I was wor- I was going to make difficult decisions and I meant it. So in effect, she probably got made. I sh- I could have probably fought for her to stay and someone else to go, but if I was letting Mandy go, my PA, my executive assistant, whatever. I was sending a message out that it was really serious and everybody, everybody. And I saw that just as a common sense. Again, you know, uh, what would, what's human nature in this? Human nature is actually if Lara's losing her right arm, who is clearly also, we had a great relationship. I mean, you know, when times were tough, I'd leave a bottle of gin and a straw on Mandy's desk because she drank gin and she worked with me. That's all you needed, isn't it? But, you know, we had I had relations, individual relationships with everybody. I mean, Rachel, when I pushed Rachel too hard, I would invariably have to go to the jelly tot drawer and put jelly tots all the way across her computer. And when I pissed Carol Ann off, I would move the pencil to the left of her screen because she was meticulous. And You know, I knew each of my people as individuals and human beings. And we had, ex- you know, I, I cared enormously that... I knew that they continually went the extra mile because everybody in the business did continual improvement. We never stood still. I don't know, maybe there's... and You know, there is a toughness. My dad went bankrupt. I, I've been driven by the paranoia of failure. My only goal in life is really to bring up decent human beings as children. That's actually really what... The only person that's going to remember you, assuming you are you know, lucky enough to have your health for as long as you have you should still outlive your children so who's going to remember you I I am driven by competitiveness because competitiveness helps with resilience and resilience and persistence for me have been qualities that you just they're priceless how do we teach more people to be resilient and persistent because that will that will definitely get you far in in the world I don't want to be combative, but I quite have. I quite like winding people up. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't ever want to appear rude and hurtful, but and I hope I'm not. Um, but I also don't suffer fools gladly because sometimes it's. Let's just cut to the chase because time is money, you know. And and if you've asked my opinion, do you want the wishy-washy one or do you want the real opinion? And that's just. I'm, I'm in a privileged position where nobody, nobody the hell's going to give me a job anyway. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want a job with a boring corporate. It's restrictive and, frankly, it's not very rewarding. If you can make money yourself in enterprise and, and, and you enjoy... It's not the making of... It's never been... For me, the driver was security and, and how that has taught me a lesson in that one daughter got kicked out of private school. The other has said earlier, it's bollocks and I want to leave. I want more freedom. She's now at the local state school and having a ball. And I've got one left that is in private school, but probably will go bollocks at, the, at GCSE because she's like, I'd like my freedom and I'd like to get a job. If that brings them up to stand on their own feet, earn their own money and have confidence to go out, then I'm all right with that. It's not about 
because actually maybe I'm wrong in the fact that I thought my public school education was the thing that shaped me enormously but maybe actually it's also the parental self-belief do the best that you can do put as much into life as you can to get life out to, to get value out and you always get more out for what you put in but most importantly do unto others as you would have done unto you and I'm not religious but I do believe fundamentally that I want everybody to be treated with fairness so I don't know where does the bluff come from I don't know. And I don't, you know, I'm, funnily enough, when I was interviewing with Deborah Meaden for the Dragon's job, she said, you seem far too nice. And I said, just you wait till I'm in a competitive environment. And, I, and she said, that's just what I'm like. She said, I'm evil. The minute Peter sits in a chair. You know, and, there's, and it's true. You know, we get, when we're on parade, and I think that's maybe what I'm doing. Maybe that is it. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I feel... The people thing has stood me in such good stead, but that's my mother's skill set, no mm. doubt. And ultimately, I'm also clever enough, I suppose, to know that that also manipulates people and gets what I, I, I need. But actually, I'm honest about it. You know, I've always said to my team, I'm going to milk you for all your worth, but I really hope you enjoy the journey. And by the way, keep learning. Ask for anything. Challenge yourself. We're going to travel a bit. We're going to do some really cool stuff. And... And it's going to be exhausting. And if you like it, then you'll stay. And that's what happened. We, we learned a recruitment uh, language that meant individual staff members would start saying to their mates, come and join our asylum. It's a bit nuts. And we used to have waiting lists because we were really honest. And, and we'd gone global. So the other thing that I... Again, I was very lucky because I had a global business that I could move... And have the brains and the, the luck to move people and go, Rob, if it ain't selling in the Middle East, go to Asia. You know, so you'd increase where it was working and reduce where it wasn't working. So literally, Rob started selling in Asia. That was the whole of the Middle East office in those days. Mm-hmm. And then he went back to the Middle East and built a bloody big team and had the biggest team in the Middle East. And it was a brilliant industry. But I think it was remarkable how quickly it recovered. I think we, I mean, when I reflect that we sold in I failed to sell in 2004 uh, because of a totally unrelated incident. I had a heads of terms at 11.2 million fax the night that de Menezes got shot on the tube. And the next morning, the Canadian pension fund that was going to back the financing of my deal withdrew the money because they saw that hospitality was no longer a good place to be. How unrelated that de Menezes being shot on the tube was bad for tourism, connected to Canadian Pension Fund, connected to Lara's deal, connected to you're not selling anymore. When I've been through the whole beauty parade. And the other thing is, is candidly, I mean, you know, we were ridiculously global, selling in 110 countries for a poxy little business doing just short of 20 million quid. I mean, it's ridiculous. We should have, we should have been much bolder. In June of 2007, I appointed an advisor... We wrote the I Am during the summer, ran the beauty parade that started on the 9th of September with invitations to come and see us, presented in early October, bids 4th of November. Nobody stuck to the timetable, but I do know the dates. After Christmas, we'll write to primary and we'll go, let's have a conversation about the offer. And I said, is there any chance we can have the conversation before Christmas because I'm pretty tired? 
And he said, well, will you accept the 19 and a half million? And I said, no. I said, it has to start with a two. And at this point, I was manipulating my advisor because I knew he'd already wanted to get the deal done. He'd already shown me signs of what we call going to the other side of the table. I had learned at Stanford, which is a business course I went to, which was priceless, called Strategy is Destiny. And um, he said, you can't do that. You're going back on... And I said, well, we haven't agreed. And he said, uh, what's your reasoning? And I said, I don't know. I've got to live with this. I'm 40, you know, 39 years old, nearly 40. I was, maybe I was 40, just 40. I've just turned 40. I've got to live with this for the rest of my life. And truthfully, my brother sold for just below 20. <laughs> so I lied. It was an absolute lie. And I said, you know what, Tim, I'm pretty tired. And I've got the Four Seasons deal up my sleeve. So I don't need to sell. So now I've manipulated my advisor, who is my trusted companion. And he said, you know, if I call primary, they could walk. And I said, yeah. But I said, then I think they still want to do the deal. And he came back no less than 11 minutes later with £20.2 million and deal done. And that is the truth. And it is extraordinary. My thanks to Lara. Don't forget, there are 11 business leaders in this series, all with different stories about how they took a very simple idea and transformed it into a multi-million pound success. Sometimes traditional thinking really does pay. All of the interviews featured in Unsexy Business are also featured in my new book of the same name. There you can read the more in-depth stories behind these entrepreneurs and their impressive journeys to success. There's also one or two anecdotes that we couldn't possibly put into the podcast, along with hundreds of tips on how you can start and build a successful business too. If you get over to Amazon, you can buy a hard copy or digital version of Unsexy Business now. It is also for sale in most major bookshops, including Waterstones and WH Smith. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on your podcast app. This means that you'll get each new episode automatically. Do join me next time. And until then, goodbye.